This podcast was a chance to reconnect with the Prince of Percha, Dr. Samir Jain. Samir is one of the kindest, gentlest, and most caring members of the endodontic ecosphere. Always a delight to chat with. It was a joyous hour. And off we go. Okay. So I had a chance to talk to uh, Samir Jain a little while ago, and he's now sitting across the computer screen from me. And uh, he's out in Las Vegas, no longer in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I have no idea what you moved out to Las Vegas. I mean, seriously, sunshine, you know, outdoors all the time. You're not sitting in the snow and whatnot. And, and you are uh, euphemistically the Prince of Percha, which I absolutely love. What a great concept. Good. Yes. What is it out there? It's 8 o'clock here. So 5 o'clock, you just finished a horrendous day. So thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. I always appreciate you thinking of me firstly, now that I'm on the far west. But, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how you do it. It's, you know, you're one of the flag bearers of our specialty and not just specialty, just dentistry in general. I think being in the education system, I've seen the transition of the way information is being consumed today is through the internet, uh, through social media more so, and you're really right at the forefront of it. So kudos to you and keep going. I'm, you're very inspirational in that sense. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, the beautiful part about it is it puts me in touch with people like you and so many others. And you, you, because it's global, you get a very different perspective than if you were just locked into a town or a region. So w- what I wanted to talk to you about today is obviously the future of endodontics, because quite honestly, uh, in the last, what, two years? Um, Two years, endodontics has undergone the most massive revolution in its history. Uh, Nitai, cone beam, uh, whatever, call it what you want. The bottom line is that we're into these these unbelievable irrigation systems, total change in the way we obturate cases, um, different sealers, different this, the feasibility that instrumentation may no longer exist, axes that are the size of pinheads. So I figured I would go to the source and talk with you and try and get a handle on just where things are going. So let's begin at the beginning. Um, The golden era of endodontics is over. You're not the first person in a tooth. Um, You know, you're the second, third, or fourth. Uh, The tooth has been opened, treated, retreated, retreated, and retreated, and then you get the fifth time around. So what's your take on the way, uh, specifically, not just endodontics, but let's focus on the specialty first. What's the practice of endodontics like today, as you see it? I think it's uh, it's still very fascinating. Um, I think it has been resilient through these time of COVID. I think the specialty um, has been running strong and is going strong, and the future looks bright. But obviously, you know, if you're not ready to adapt, um, I think that's where the challenges lies. Uh, I think at this point, the practice is uh, undergoing a dynamic change, uh, literally, um, with the mindset. I think over the last 20, 30 years since the Schilder era, the focus has always been bacterial, uh, bacteria, bacteria to decontaminate the, uh, the max we could. I think now the focus has shifted over the years since we do have more literature, we do have more evidence and just as a day-to-day conditions, we do see a lot of follow-ups and why teeth fail. And I think dentine preservation has taken uh, a massive part of the discussion these days. And following that dentine preservation, how do we irrigate that? Those minimally invasive canals or those tiny axes, that's why the, the progress in irrigation is now um, again on the forefront uh, versus how the traditional root canal was done. I think the practice of, to come back to your question, the practice of endo has uh, become more specialized where I think we do share the work with most GPs in North America who are touching the root canal or who are consulting and seeing the tooth the first time around. Uh, also with the rapid uh, growth of the DSO, mm-hmm. I think by the time an endodontist in an endo practice sees the case, it is definitely something uh, which is going to be either a more complex case or a retreatment. Um, I think that's where we stand. I think as we move ahead, there might be a split of two 
among the specialists where people are seeing the simple cases in a DSO office, or you are referred uh, in a very boutique type endo practice where everybody has lost hope and you are the last uh, stop for the tooth to be saved. I think that's be I, I think so. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the, you mentioned DSOs. Now, when you talk to people in Europe and you hear DSOs, they talk about DSOs as if they are the devil incarnate. And yet here in North America, they are being, uh, because of the cost of going to dental school, they're increasingly more and more embraced. Uh, different story in Europe, but they're starting up in Europe as well. Uh, and the original seed money for a lot of them came out of Australia, this sort of thing. It's not like it isn't a global phenomenon. So I'm curious, if you were a specialist brought into a DSO, which right. may very well happen in the course of your practice life, there are, you know, there are some very well-known endodontists who have sold their practice to DSOs and have committed to the next five and seven years. Right. So what's it going to be like if you shift over to a dental service organization? So, you know, just for the listeners, just a quick background on myself. You know, I used to be at Virginia Commonwealth as a full-time faculty. I transitioned to full-time private practice in Las Vegas. So four days a week, I work right where I'm sitting right now at an endo practice that's owned by a solo owner. But one day a week, I do work outside at a DSO just to get a feel of it. I just wanted to experience what it feels like as a traveling endodontist. And people, and I do see a lot of new uh, graduating residents or endodontists with the student debt they have and the type of life they live, they want something fast and without a lot of liability. So working for a DSO uh, comes with some advantages for sure where you do see a lot of these fresh virgin cases because most DSOs, I think they don't allow their general dentist to see any endo. Oh, really? Yes, they have an, in, I'll give you an example of where I work, PDS, not to name drop anything, but it's one of the largest one on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. big um, they don't allow their general dentist to do any endo. So in a way, that's good and bad for the patient because you are directly being seen by a specialist. But what it does uh, limit is the specialist's ability to really work with the best instruments and best materials. Now, I do have a... a traveling microscope, which I have to go and mount every time, but the quality is not, obviously not going to be the same as one which is wall-mounted, state-of-the-art. Um, I think, this, apart from that, what I do see other colleagues who work in a DSO practice, they work with loops because their schedule is packed, stacked back-to-back. -back. I think the cons is that, the scheduling, it's, it, is, it has been pre-diagnosed, it has been pre-planned for a crown. I think what the DSO expects is production numbers to, they want to hit the go. target. So sadly, there will be some patients who will not get the proper care and which will end up getting some issues which need to be sent out to an endodontist, which is not ideal. I think somewhere the specialist in the DSO still have a, still have a respectable role where they do kind of manage their own schedule. They're not under the same stress as a general dentist, but I do see uh, the shift slowly because ultimately um, they are a business organization. So, well, you uh, left research, you left academia when you moved out to the West Coast, to Las Vegas. Um, the only reason I'm persisting with this is you made an interesting point. These are business driven. They're owned by equity groups for the, for the most part or dental owner, whatever it happens to be. But the question is, you're starting your career out. A lot of these dentists that are graduating, the endodontists that are graduating, are facing a future of large debt. Now, this is not the case in Europe, so, I mean, everybody in Europe is going, yeah, but it doesn't apply to us. The only difference is that um, you're still dealing with management, you're still dealing with patient acceptance. Uh, I don't know if COVID has bothered Europe the same way it has in North America, lost jobs, that kind of thing. I'm sure there are concerns about economic status uh, when, you know, shut down and, you know, things have changed. Um, but the, the advantage of a, of a DSO seems to be management, right? HR, uh, providing you marketing strategies, that sort of thing. But from your perspective as somebody who's like obviously at the head of the game in your profession or your discipline, do, do you see this sullying your perspective or your brand as a specialist? Because this is really business and market driven. With all due respect to them, the bottom line is the bottom line. 
And uh, is that going to change your view of how you see moving forward? You know, it, it depends. Um, you know, I think there are different types of DSOs too. Among the DSOs, there are DSOs which have general dentist and specialist in-house, but there are specialty DSOs as well, which kind of let you be autonomous in terms of your clinical practice, and they just take care of the administrative part of it. I think those are the more thriving kind of DSOs which I see in the future, because ultimately, if you know statistically, um, a, a, a survey done by the ADA, endo as a specialty is the lowest joining the corporates. Every other specialty has adopted the corporates or they are joining the corporates, endo is the least. Mm -hmm. Because dentists work at a different schedule. They don't see 20 patients a day. And I think their um, influx in the corporates or DSO system has been lesser, still resistant. But I think um, in more competitive cities, uh, or more metro cities, I should say, they are sadly going to be part of the ecosystem. Um, and I say sadly because, um, you know, I think you can still be profitable or still grow as a practice, solo practitioner or a group practice, but just the amount of admin and the cost of buying instruments in bulk versus a lesser amount, you're getting the best deals for General Wave or your cone beam, you know, those things do add up. And at the end, whoever bleeds the most and still survives will, will be in the market. So DSOs are bleeding money at the start, but they're waiting till everybody else dries up, just like how Amazon did to small business. Right, so right. It's on us as a specialist and as a specialty organization to kind of balance that growth out so that it's kind of best for the patient and for the specialty. I, I hadn't heard that before. That's a fantastic analogy. Amazon is a DSO and the <laughs> mom and pop bookstores or whatever they are, they're, they're being, being basically pressed out of existence, pushed out of existence. And I wonder if that's going to happen to the, uh, the boutique, maybe not the boutique practice, but certainly the, uh, the one, two, five man group practice, whatever. They're, they're going to be forced into the fiscal realities, particularly yeah. because of the equipment. Which brings us full cycle back to why I wanted to talk to you. Um, you started to work on dynamic navigation, which is how we met. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit because uh, in the context of what's going on with minimal uh, access, dynamic navigation, as Paula Villa is demonstrating, seems to be the sine qua non. And I don't think anybody's going to do endo without dynamic navigation anymore. Microscopes, augmented reality like Bobby Nadeau is doing. This is just the future. The endodontic office uh, really started digital workflow. That's what an apex locator was. But now with cone beam, dynamic navigation, son endo or edge pro endo, with uh, this, that, and the other, we are, endodontics is digital workflow. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, no matter how you want to, you know, shake it, we are digital workflow. So my, my question to you is, given that I've known that you've done a lot of studies, particularly with minimally invasive access using, using Navident, Talk to me about trusses, minimally invasive access. Uh, I, uh, well, yeah, let's, let's talk about trusses to start with and, and, and the value that all of this working through a pinhole uh, really boils down. Is it, is it necessary? How many virgin teeth are intact? How many teeth are just better? Taking the filling out and keeping a fairly restricted access in the chamber space. Like, like is this just a, a fancy phase so that people can prove it's like... Uh, you know, my so-so is bigger than your so-so kind of thing? Yeah, it, it could be a, that, that slinging fest, but, uh, by, uh, but on a serious note, okay? So, you know, I remember talking about trusses or minimally invasive access. During my residency, I used to do and tried out an experiment five years ago, and everybody was opposed to it. JOE had a couple of articles in a year where they said there's not enough evidence, it's not... Uh, recommended. Now, if you pick a JOE, every single month, there are at least two or three articles testing these different kind of axes. There's a whole classification. So it has been adopted and it has been adopted because of clinicians. I think you want to always cite John Cadme and David Clark, I guess they mm -hmm, started mm -hmm. minimally invasive axes or saving the dentine, um, um, the push for that. To be honest, I think my I've tried out all these type of accesses. I think, firstly, um, 
It is not a fad, for sure. No. Uh, I think it requires, firstly, an open mindset. And I think you want to be more practical versus trying to be more fancy with your axes. When I say practical, I think most endodontists are used to just trying to get to the root canal as soon as possible, getting the root canal done, placing a cotton and a cabot, sending it back to your referral. But I think our goal as an endodontist is first to remove the cause of the problem, which is the decay and fracture restoration of the crack. And utilizing that, the concept of being, you know, opportunistic with your axis, where you just utilize the lost tooth structure to get into the nerve space. I think that if you have that mindset, automatically truss axis or MIE axis makes sense. If there is a DO um, cavity and you are dealing with an upper first molar, to open up till your mesiobuccal canal, you might blow up the old tooth. But if you just focus on whatever you can get entry through that distal caries and then make a tiny hole in the front, you can kind of preserve that oblique ridge or the band of dentine in between. And, you know, people you, who are on Instagram or social media, they can follow my account or anybody. I mean, there are tons of amazing anodontists on Instagram who will post all these axes. The amount of dentine we preserve, and I've noticed that, that at the, by the end of the case, I'm like, I would have traditionally lost all that dentine, which is holding the whole buccal and lingual wall together, which is significantly a lot if you, if you do end up preserving it in many cases when the platform of the pulp chamber is really wide. All that dentine would have been lost if we had gone through the traditional route and all the stresses then would have been on the marginal ridges. That's where the crack would Right, right. Most. So I do think if you pick, I think case selection is the key. You can't do it on every case. And by no means you should just do it for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. You want to be very prudent where you want to apply those concepts. So having that open mindset and letting go of the existing baggage of what we learn in residency, I think that's the first step. And then slowly getting better with your axis. Um, and using a microscope, and as we mentioned, um, that's where the predictability comes with dynamic navigation. I think... Um, even though I would practice day in, day out all my minimally invasive axes, I still am never 100% sure if I'm going to fall right where I want to fall. The dynamic navigation uh, integration to the practice basically clears that um, second double thought which we have. It is going to make it 100% predictable. Well, at Navident, for example, uh, is... I think, what was it, XNAV was designed by an oral surgeon specifically for implants. Right. And Navident was the same, except Navident has accepted the fact, for example, that they have an endomodule now. Right. So, you know, in talking to Nadeau and other people, and Paulo Via in particular, they, they recognize that the application for endodontics, not only is it valid now, but with obvious changes in the algorithms and CBCT filters and algorithms will change, the quality of the image as it's imported into the uh, into the software for the Navident in particular, you're going to be literally with augmented reality. It's like driving a jet. You know, you can thread the needle. It's going to be awesome. I agree, and I think I've had you know, discussions with you in the past with with uh, Duron, with Edo. I feel like it's a matter of a few years that the market for dynamic navigation for endodontics is going to be bigger than implants. I think it is much more valuable for an endodontist to be able to preserve the tiny little dentine versus being a little bit off with your implants, which is still kind of, you know, with your crown, you can still manage that. But with, the, with, with endo, you need that precision and the value it adds in preserving dentine is second to none. Um, not to mention just the fact that when you explain this to a patient, they're just fascinated. It's such an amazing marketing tool as well. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you just mentioned that because one of the questions I asked at the beginning, if I recall, because I'm getting old, I don't remember that very well, what I said five minutes ago. Uh, we talked about complex cases. Um, my sense of, even when I left practice, was that 80% of the teeth that I was treating were crowned. Or, yeah. you know, so, I mean, realistically, you can go through a crown with a microscope, but you lose your landmarks. Whereas by using real-time feedback, that's not an issue. 
You know, that's yeah. kind of obviated, especially because um, in this particular, I think in 3.0 it is with Navident, the scatter and whatnot is like they can, it's cl the clarity of the image when you're going down the canal space has been dramatically altered. Accessing through the crown rather into the, uh, into the canal space. Have you worked with 3.0 yet? I, you know, I have got a glimpse of the 3.0 because uh, I think at the TDO meeting, I, I met with um, uh, Navident guys and they did show me some glimpse of the new um, version along with the, the, the foot control stopping if you're off by a certain, so, you know, a couple of those amazing additions where the margin for error has also been eliminated. Right, right. I'm very excited. I think that was the missing piece in the puzzle. I think their ability to reduce the the beam hardening, as we say in in the cone beam image, and ability to not only tell you whether you're off as you're drilling, but to stop the to machine. To stop you, this machine stops. Right, it's amazing. You're too off. That I think that's that's going to be the game changer. Um, I wish hmm. I'd done research with those uh, modules, but um, you know. Well, you published a couple of papers on it originally where you started looking at, what was it, uh, Equinav yeah. or whatever it was to show the line of accuracy in terms of the validity of it. Uh, yeah. But now I think, like you said, 3.0 is just, a, it is a game changer. They've, they've, it's, it's, you're right, it's probably a year or two away with the modifications that they're making, the incorporation of augmented reality into the microscope ocular. It's, it's how you're going to do access. It just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. you know, to move along those along that line. So that being said, so we've got trusses, minimally invasive access with respect to using dynamic navigation, real-time feedback with the assistance that microscope brings, cone beam to give you a, a three-dimensional, true three-dimensional perspective, specifically the axial slice. I mean, the day that you could look at a canal system axially, it was like Nirvana, right? It was like Valhalla, it was Xanadu. And so all that being said, um, but the era is changing, like yeah. minimally invasive access, bioceramic, bioactive sealers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly the question of nighttime instruments is right. coming into question. Are we really going to have to instrument a case anymore? Thoughts? <laughs> Great question. I think the evidence is still, um, yeah, there's still a growing evidence in that realm, but it's still not. 100% proven for someone to make that shift, but I think it kind of does make sense. Um, I think a lot of uh, the general wave users started the, the no instrumentation or non-instrumentation um, disinfection technique where essentially in a wider canal, you just run the general wave and just get an apical uh, stop, gauge the apical width, and then start obturating with single cone BC sealer technique. I've also heard from clinicians who are honest about their feedback, uh, despite being owners of general wave, that they do when they do put a file in, sometimes they do find some tissue in there. So they're not 100% sold mm -hmm. on instrumentation technique. Having said that, I think the role of instruments previously was to allow the disinfectants to go all the way to the apex, to open it up enough so that a needle syringe was able to go at least in the apical third. I think now the role of, with general wave or even lasers for that matter is to just establish patency, having that one single glide path, maybe instrumenting a little bit more in a more wider canal. I think um, as long as you have the augmented irrigation systems, I think you can maybe roll the dice and maybe just utilize one or two files for basically getting the glide path. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised um, if that's where we are headed to. But the results, I do see amazing clinicians publishing or posting cases on social media. And I've seen where, you know, can we find all the MB2s in the world? Not really. But sometimes these irrigation systems will kind of backfill from the MB1 and find that MB2, which was just almost impossible in certain cases. Uh, I've seen so many anatomy being popped uh, in all these cases, which traditionally you would never expect. Um, you know, you're in Toronto, so Ghassan Yarid, uh, mm -hmm, I remember mm -hmm. attending one of his lectures. This is just out of, I don't want to dive into Reciproc but, and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, but, but there was a, a lecture I attended his where he was 
kind of promoting a single cone technique, although all his life he did warm vertical. Mm -hmm. And at the start of the lecture, he said, when you look at all my x-rays by the end of the lecture, you will ask me if it's photoshopped or not, because he was popping all these lateral anatomies. And I asked him, how was he doing that at the end of the lecture? And he said he was basically doing it at three visits with EDTA. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so you either do three visits of completely <clears throat> traditional instrumentation and EDTA, or you run this general wave, which is essentially kind of accelerating that process in eight minutes. Um, you are getting the same result without losing a lot of dentine. So for sure, there is evidence growing in that. Um, I think the technology is also being perfected. I think general wave or lasers, they are still trying to work out the best handpiece and mm -hmm. getting the best seal coronally to be able to get the most out of their machines. I think it's evolving. I don't think uh, the future is that far where instrumentation will essentially just be glide path and patency and and run the, run the magic. That, that enormous gulp that you just heard was every um, endodontic file manufacturer with their $750,000 milling machine sitting in factories who just decided they had to figure out what kind of a tax write-off they could get for getting rid of all those milling machines. Um, I don't know that it's, it's going to be very difficult, obviously, on a global scale to change that. But um, kudos to Chuck Goodis, who just released, released Edge Pro Endo, correct? This is his new uh, fluid dynamic, sonic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, machine, which is a third the price of Sonendo. So if that uh, entry into the market is already there, you can obviously expect that within the next year or two, mm -hmm. somebody's going to come in less expensive. It's like intraoral scanners, right? You don't have to spend fifty dollars or $60,000 on an intraoral scanner anymore. You can spend fifteen, dollars and literally as things miniaturize and software improves, you get the same quality, if not more. And, uh, you know... Literally, you're going to see another machine come onto the market. You know, it's going to get copied in some country and they'll violate all the patents and they'll steal all the IP. And, you know, welcome to the $10,000 irrigation device. But, but the, the results that they're showing, not just Sonendo, Chuck's already done studies with it. There are papers that have been published. And you cannot, fine, you, to bring a patient back three times, with EDTA, especially in today's time, who gets the time off to travel like that? It's just not—it's not financially prudent or fiscally, you know, um, reasonable for a patient to leave a practice. But if you can literally just put a little cone on top, a cup on top of your tooth, minimally invasive access or not, and clean out a root canal without, you know, running the risk of iatrogenesis, life is going to change dramatically. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I think, uh, you know, my. Um my program director, Sam Don, you probably met him once. Mm -hmm. He always have this comment that endodontists are super cheap. You know, we have the lowest <laughs> overhead. Uh, you know, we probably will still do better than most dentists, but still we want to save money every way possible. So we have these knockouts coming in, and then the market adopters much, much more. But coming back to your point, you know, um, with, you know, if you think hypothetically, if, if these irrigation systems are that great, um, we could also be in a situation in the future where they, you just basically run this machine after patency and you just do a coronal seal. You don't even have to obturate because it's exactly. a sterile, uh, empty space. Having said that, you, we all know that you can never really eradicate every single bacteria, but... Um, yeah, it is, it is, I guess, you know, the, it is going to be hard to change everybody's mindset and habit to adopt these augmented irrigation systems. But I think there will be a certain kind of balance where you will have the role of instrumentation, maybe lesser, maybe it will just be one file versus 10 files, um, but you would probably still be able to I think uh, there is a market for, you know, everything takes time to be adopted, but I don't see anything stopping it because I think as, as a human species, we're always looking for what's better, what's next. Exactly. There is no room for, I think, I think the philosophy should be there could be room for everything in the market. 
I think everything can have its own place, could have its pros and cons, and it will just depend on your preference. Having said that, the industry will never allow you to think like that. There's uh -huh. only one, uh, one dawn in the, in the, in the city. So. Well, it's not just that. I mean, it, this is fine if you're an endodontist and committed to the $100,000 for a CBCT. Uh, you don't have to spend 80000 on a Sonendo anymore. Now you can spend 30000 on an Edge Pro Endo. If you reduce the number of files, um, who knows, the irrigating solution, thanks to analkesia, may end up, instead of sodium hypochlorite, it'll be some mix of nanoparticle, right. whatever, chitosan chitos nanoparticles. And, the, you know, the, the bio load in these teeth will literally disappear. But the, 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 the confrontation you're going to get is, like, wait a minute, I'm getting 95% success now with traditional instrumentation techniques. I'm using uh, high-flow bio, you know, bio bioceramic sealer with vertical obturations. So why am I going to buy all these toys? You know, do I really need it if I have this traditional approach? And, and certainly the way Endo has been marketed uh, by unnamed companies, you know, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all carrier-based obturation. You're talking not just about a technical shift, but a massive mindset reorientation. And so the question becomes, is Endo, uh, are, there, are there enough people in endodontics who are willing to share that information and really lead the charge to revamp and revitalize the industry. The way the implant people have done. I mean, it, you know, implants were always market driven, but an implant now is a nail and all you need is a hammer, provided that the wood is dense enough and wide enough so it doesn't splinter. So, you know, that's an implant, right? The only difference is there's soft tissue. So the question becomes, will the endodontists in the AAE around the world, the uh, European society, do you think they'll become standard bearers for this? I mean, they're being paid by the companies. That's who, that's who takes care of, you know, their conventions, their meetings, your sponsorship, your this, your that. Do you think they're going to be in a position to fly in the face of the obvious and really make this transitional transformative shift? I think it is on, the, on us and the endodontists of the future to take charge on that front. I think most endodontists still their reality is... Um, traditional what they learned during residency, probably from Gates Glitton to, to the pro papers. Um, I think it's just a few people who are passionate about endodontics who consistently post on social media are kind of spreading that word around. And obviously the general wave adaptation, there is no marketing. I was coming to the point where I think the shift will only happen when it is adopted more by the residency programs. Right. I think Fred Barnett is one of the first ones who adopted lasers for his yes. residency. Yes, yes. Once you get that exposure, you know the risks and benefits. You know how to fine-tune where, in which cases, how to utilize that system. Only then you can go out confidently in practice without liability, utilize these systems without a lot of issues. But if you are in 10 years, 20 years into your practice, to go and make that transition, I was just speaking to a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, 20 years ago, um, into practice. Fantastic clinicians, one of the best clinicians I've ever known. Uh, he posts a lot on social media. Even for him, it took six months or a year to adopt the general wave. This is just a new routine. Just his schedule had to be changed. He had to get adopted. But the goal was to do better for the, for the patient preserve dentine, yet give them a better disinfection. I think when you are, if you truly want to, you know, believe that, that you want to do best for your patient, you will adopt it. Because when someone argues, right, my success was 95% all my life, I mean, how many endodontists are really following up their own mm -hmm, patients? Mm -hmm. I mean, all these studies till date, I would say the outcome studies, how many of them had access to a pre-op and post-op scan to really see if it's heading in the right direction? How many of them were failed restoratively, which endodontists will never take the blame for, or the general dentist, but how many of them were failing restoratively versus endodontically? I think there is a big gap in what really is mentioned or quoted in our studies. But what happens in real life and prior practice, I would say we overestimate our success. I think our success is, I would say, 70 to 80 percent, to be honest. To be honest, yes. And I think you probably practice all these years. If you follow up your cases, if you're in one, one practice, it is humbling to see sometimes your own case come back after a year. It's still not healing. You have to go in surgically. Um, so I do think 
if anodontists are honest about their own, own uh, limitations with the current uh, status quo, I think there is room for improvement with these, uh, with these uh, augmented instrumentation. Well, what's interesting is, you know, when you used to go out and lecture, I mean, this is not, this is, I don't know, prior to 10 years ago, you know, you had these tsunami irrigation, the yeah. thrill of the fill, you know, all this kind of stuff. Endodontics for the longest time was mechanistic. Yeah. You know, that's what Nighttime was all about. Um, you know, there were all these, uh, the Baumgartners and the Waltons who were talking microbiology, Jesus, microbiology. And, um, but now what these devices are doing is they really are addressing bioload in a way nothing else could ever do. That was when Endovac came out, right? That was Schofel's thing. They looked at CFUs and it could make them disappear and all that kind of good stuff. And, you know, even on the internet today, you get the, 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 um, there, there are all these people about, I can scout and I don't put a night tie in until I've gotten my glycoth in. It's, it's, again, it's still mechanistic. Right? It's, it's about what the look is. Like, who really cares what it looks like if it's not truly clean? And uh, that's sort of where things are going. Uh, you know, kudos to Chuck. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how rapidly it's embraced. Right. Because of the cost difference, I would I would think just having a unit in the office just makes sense, you know, for whatever particular reason. You know, they should be being purchased like peanuts. Right. So, all of this brings us back to the most obvious. You you raised it. You could literally close the root canal system and like trope proved what seventy million years ago, like when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, that if you close down the access, it still worked. Yeah, like who cares as long? Yeah. What was it? Ray and Trope. That was who it is. 1975 or something. I think to the date in board exams, they they beat that paper down where good coronal seal is more important than good apical seal. And um, I think that brings back, you know, our, our original uh, discussion about who places the core. I think. There we go. We, 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 it's, it is proven by evidence. We like to quote it everywhere in our board exams and our written exams and to get a diplomat status. But the day you step out in your practice, you realize uh, you are actually at the mercy of your referring dentist or your general dentist. And somehow there is this unwritten uh, understanding uh, or rule where you are supposed to send it back with just a filthy sponge and a temporary restoration, yeah, yeah, yeah. which you hope will last enough uh, to prevent all your hard work or with the rubber dam uh, against the saliva and the, and the bacteria um, with it. So I think that I think is the most pressing issue in our specialty over anything else. I think how do we change that mindset? I think it does start from residency programs, uh, from, from dental schools taking the charge kind of um, you know, educating all our dental students that you got to understand it is in the best interest and it shouldn't be a turf war for who gets the money from the insurance for the core buildup. Right. Um, but also, I used to be of that mindset that it is obvious that I should place the core as an endodontist. And I did that all in, in my residency. For all my cases, nobody stopped us because we were in the dental school. But in private practice, there was a lot of uh, resistance to that. But not only that, I, I, I realized that actually most endodontists don't want to do it themselves. They're like, this is, they're losing money placing the core buildups. Yeah. I think even among endodontists, the acceptance isn't evidence-based yet to that you want to place the core under the rubber dam and magnification. I think if we can just shift that mindset among all the North American endodontists, our success rate will automatically go up without right. any additional irrigation. Right. Having said that, I'm still not in 100% practice where I will place all my core buildups, but I do try to call up my referring dentist and, and we do have these discussions and back and forth. Um, there was a guy in Toronto who, um, uh, a very, very talented endodontist, who put his foot down and he said, I'm not sending it back to you if I'm not doing the court. So that was a very gutsy, ballsy move for the guy. And he came very close to going out of business because that was a very um, stand your ground kind of like, you know, uh, uh, Gary Cooper high noon moment, right? And, uh, but it worked out for him. And interestingly enough, 
the transition in cores is not fiber reinforced composites, but a lot of guys are going back to amalgam. Yeah. And uh, for very good reasons. Uh, composites fail. They, um, they displace underneath crowns, that sort of thing. And amalgam, you know, if you want to get into the mercury business, this, that, and the other, uh, I, I'm not so sure that I, you know, totally buy it. But if you're covering it with the crown, where's the leaching coming from kind of thing? But there is that shift. So he started returning all his cases with amalgam cores, which kind of freaked people out at the beginning. But they began to realize that, you know, you can literally place a margin on an amalgam and it'll still be there in 30 years, right? Or if you did that with a composite, good luck. Good luck, yeah. I think, um, I think it, it is surprisingly obvious. I think what an endodontist, from, from the pulse of what I get, speaking to a lot of them, who are still hesitant to place the course, it's not their willingness to learn operative procedures. I think it's their willingness to spend that much extra time and get reimbursed the same way. I think somewhere the insurance um, is also dictating that the amount someone probably gets paid for a massive core buildup for the time it took, which was probably twice uh, the time it took for the endo is, is kind of shameful, um, the reimbursement rate. So I think somewhere who are people who are practicing, and I think you're referring to Viraj Bora, I'm not sure. Yes, I am, yes. But I think somewhere to practice the way he does or practice the way many of endodontists who practice in the similar philosophy, you have to kind of stay uh, a safe distance from the insurance companies and maybe go with fee-for-service route where you do are able to provide all the time and effort needed to rehabilitate the tooth. But the more you do accept these insurances, that's where they cut off your wings, where sometimes it's not worth the time. It is the sad reality. It's not the most ethical thing, and I hate to even confess that, but it is the sad reality. Um, and I think it is on us using platforms like these or social, social media to convey that message. I know AE is also kind of, you know, kind of coming up with a lot of these codes for orifice barriers. And I think eventually, I think the, the goal is to spread enough awareness where let your endodontist do the core, let, you, let, let him take all the stress of a deep distal margin on a number 15 right. and, and save time for something better in your practice as a general dentist. I think, once they see an Adonis placing good cores, I think automatically it will be a no-brainer for them. Well, Viraj certainly did that in Toronto. He's the consummate clinician, and I give him all the, all the credit in the world. He's, uh, he, he, he took an ethical standpoint, and not many of us are willing to do that because, like you said, uh, the greatest motivating factor in, the, in life is money. But, you know, well, I don't want to sound like a, an elitist schnook, but you'll always make a good living. It's a question of looking after your patients. There's a certain empathetic perspective. They, um, they come to you seeking the best possible care. And that's not defined by cost. That's defined by skill. All of that being said, it takes us to the last discussion today. That is endodontists doing implants. So I'm going to tell you my bias, and then you can share your bias. Um, it took far too many years for endodontists to recognize that things like piezotomes and trefines and soft and hard tissue augmentation were very much a part of endodontic microsurgery. You can, you know, do a von Erich's minimized flap and use six and seven oh cardiac sutures and all that kind of good stuff. But that doesn't help you if the biotype is thin and if you're, you know, you can't buttress the tooth in question when you flapped it with a, uh, an, an allograft or something. I, I remember it was, uh, I'm trying to think. Remember, I'm very old by contrast to you. I think the first, I think it was well into the teens before there were courses given by endodontists uh, by the AAE on bone grafting, for example. And they just now are starting to teach surgical courses using piezotomes. I right. mean, seriously, you know, I mean, the implantologist did this years and years ago. And we got away with it because, you know, we were doing vertical osteotomies. And, but, you know, it was encased in, in, in by bone. You know, you weren't worried about a thin peripheral wall and the implant was going to fail. But that's not really the case. You know, it's not really true. 
So if, if endodontists learn how to do that, and they're dealing with the patient already and the case is not restorable, should an endodontist not, by virtue of proper duty of care, do an implant? I think uh, the jury is uh, still out there on, on endodontists placing implants. You know, just, I'll, I'll first just get this one point out of my chest, you know, just like, how we uh, communicate with our dental students or general dentists that, you know, we spend additional three years training just doing uh, endodontics. Um, so we should be the ones doing the root canals. Similarly, if you haven't spent at least a year in additional training learning implants, go on a weekend course and learn implants and then be practicing single tooth implants for that matter, it's still, um, you know, it's still kind of a risky business. Um, I would say the endodontist of the future will be placing implants with, with the advent of the cracked teeth. I think post-pandemic, I think AE came with a survey. I think the endodontists have seen 60% rise in cracked cases. Absolutely. The stressed out, the parafunction habits are getting out of hand. Um, when patients walk in, I see one crack case every day, if not mm -hmm. two one crack case every day. And sometimes there's just no other option but recommending extraction. Patients are seeking something where you can provide some form of therapy, something to get them out of pain, but also in their uh, benefit of um, the ridge, you place single tooth implant. Uh, is placing implants technically challenging? I don't think technically it's challenging. I think under a microscope, most periodontists and oral surgeons would agree endodontists are in a great position to place an implant. I think it's such a microscopic procedure as well. Having said that, I think the accuracy and the experience that comes with placing multiple implants is what we lack, which right. is where I would like to plug in and for the right reasons where if you have a dynamic navigation system mm -hmm. in your practice, mm -hmm. that allows you to kind of offer single tooth implant as a treatment alternative as well for cracked cases, because you can use the same system to do those minimally invasive axes, but also accurately place implants. Um, so let's I go one step further in this. I, I don't mean to stop you yeah. for a sec, but you don't, the, the beauty of doing, if the, if the endodontist was willing to appreciate that he had a duty of care to that patient, that if you're dealing with cracked teeth, right. even if you don't have a, a surgical guide, you can drill through the roots on a lower molar, and that's the best surgical guide you will ever have. Right. That's lower molars. With upper molars, provided there aren't sinus issues, drill through the split between the roots. Again, the best surgical guide you're ever going to have. And there's one thing that has made a difference that I, I think disputes whether endodontists can do it. That's densibers. Right. You know, you, the, the osso-densification burr has made life easy for the implantologist. It's the same rationale for an endodontist needing to do it. Yes, there will be a need for bone grafting and you have to learn how to do soft tissue grafting, but you should know how to do that anyway when you're doing apical surgery or microsurgery. That's just a given. Right. But I think from a standpoint, as I say, I realize, I think for the, in the vast majority of cases, it'll be like, of course, the, the referring doctor wants to do it. But do they want to do the surgery or do they want to do the restoration? And so we're going to have all these balances, checks and balances, and, you know, if then, you know, whatever. Um, it's going to be an interesting time in endodontics, uh, right. starting now, actually. Right, I agree. And as I mentioned previously, like, you know, there's place for everything. You know, yep. most endodontists, their argument to not placing implants is they're so busy. If you're not a busy endodontist, you shouldn't be placing implants. That's a very lame argument, but... That's, as I mentioned, there's, you know, place for everything where you are providing quality service, where you take care of every single patient in your chair, give all the time, and you also offer the, the most, uh, you know, state-of-the-art technology. So I think there's room for that. And then there is room for a fast-paced dentistry where, you know, you probably, unfortunately, are at the mercy of a lot of the insurances and patients then end up being at a, at a boutique end of practice maybe down the, down the years um, for retreatment or surgery. I think there's room for everything. I think as a specialty, we need to be, we need to see these trends and probably get united to kind of 
have a better standard of care. I think AE, the presidents every year, they do speak about one single standard of care. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, 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 and endodontists, but among endodontists itself, there is different standard of care. Right, exactly. We need to, to address the big elephant in the room, um, starting with placing the cores or doing single tooth implants. Um, I think uh, it is going to be a very interesting and exciting times moving forward. It, it will be. And, and of course, like you say, people who would listen to this that are not uh, in quote unquote first world countries, you know, they're going to challenge you. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, places get $30. Like, I think if you do an endo in NH, what was it, the National Health Service in Britain or UK, you get 30 bucks for doing an endo. However, there are people who are trying to cope with that. And somebody like Anil Keishan, with what he's doing, He's looking for a delivery system, root canal if he does it correctly or whatever, or if he eliminates the bio load, it, you know, it's $3 for the irrigation system or something. So there are people committed to bringing quality standards to, you know, third world countries. Not to say that in third world countries there isn't first world dentistry going on. It's quite fascinating to see what's coming out of the Far East and South Asia. And in Europe it's like, I mean, we always think of the United States and Canada as being the quote unquote center of the universe. That's just not true anymore, right? Oops, you're not supposed to say that. Anyway, listen, I, I know it's late for you. You want to get home and have some dinner, and you've had a busy day, so I want to thank you for doing this. It's, um, it's delightful to see you. Um, yeah. You know, it's another one of these ridiculous examples where you communicate by email, you talk to people, you have these lengthy conversations online or on a WhatsApp. You never met them. You, you've never been in the same room with them, which is ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, you're in Las Vegas now. I can justify going to Las Vegas where I had a lot of problems with going to Virginia. But that's neither here nor there. All right, my friend, listen, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Go home to your family. And I wish you all the success. I, I, I'm sure that that isn't even necessary. Uh, you know, uh, your skill set is always on show. For those who don't know where to find you, it's Prince of Percha on Instagram. I mean, the coolest name go Prince of Perch. I mean, who, 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 that fell into your lap, right? That was just too cool for words. And give it to me just for FYI. Yeah, I was one day in, in clinic uh, with my pre-doc students and someone just gave that name to me and I said, this is going to be my Instagram name from today. <laughs> so. Well, that's, yeah, one of the assistants when I was at school came up with this. said, well, you're Kendo, right? Not Ken, Kendo. I said, okay, cool, very good. It all works out. Thank you again. Good talking to you. And I'll let you know as soon as this goes up on the social media platforms. Okay, my friend? It's a pleasure. Always Cheers. a pleasure, man. You take care of yourself. Bye-bye now. I trust that we walk the uh, political tightrope in this podcast. It uh, reminds me of the old joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Lawyer. Lawyer who? Lawyer up. Uh, these podcasts truly really are fun. It's uh, an opportunity to sit around a virtual table and virtual cafe and just kick back with a friend, colleague, acquaintance, and just somebody you've learned to admire. There are a number of these in process. One with Sabine Meyer, Fafi Camposiora, uh, Paula Villa, Sylvia La Rosa, and there were a few guys thrown in as well for good measure. So please visit the podcast on the various podcast platforms. We'll keep you updated on BID Nexus in the metaverse. I mean, Mark, really? Seriously? Metaverse? Anyway, we shall speak soon. Have a good day.